Well, we've had a bit of fun, haven't we? But now we're turning to God's word. But hey, in all sports, commitment is so important. If you're a rugby player or a footy player, whatever you do, you have to be committed to the game and to your team. And also, uh, a supporter is committed. And uh, also, the, the, the coach, they're all committed to the one cause. And commitment to Christ is a key to the Christian life, but also Christ's commitment to us, which is really what this chapter we're going to look at today is all about. Because chapter 13 started this passage of five chapters where Jesus is talking to his disciples about the fact that he's going to be going away and they're going to be left as disciples without him there. And uh, as we saw last week, the chapter 13 talked about love being the absolute key to being a disciple of Jesus, following his example of servant love. This chapter is about his commitment to us having his decision or his, his uh, telling them that he's going to be going away, that he is still committed to them. And he calls them really in this chapter to faith, faith that faces the future. And that's the sermon today, the message today from this passage. It is all about faith facing the future. You see, there's no chapter break in the original. And Jesus had just been responding to Peter who said, Lord, where are you going? When he told them that he was going away. Um, and Jesus said, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will afterwards. And then you move into chapter 14 straight away. And what do you have? You have Jesus say immediately after that, let not your hearts be troubled. It's not merely cheer up, you know, uh, you'll be okay. It is more an imperative. It's actually a command. Jesus commands his disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. Have you ever thought of that as a command? That when you have a heart that's troubled over whatever it is, your future or your situation in life, whatever it might be, Jesus commands, don't be troubled. Don't let your heart be troubled. You see, these people, these uh, disciples had left home. They felt threatened and insecure. They'd followed this man, Jesus, believing him to be the Messiah. They left their careers behind, their fishing nets or whatever it was, their tax uh, business uh, for Matthew. And they'd followed Jesus for these three years, expecting that he would be the Messiah who would sit on the throne and rule, and they would be all a part of that. And uh, so... Uh, you remember after Jesus had died and risen again, two of the disciples were walking to Emmaus. And uh, when Jesus pulled alongside them, came alongside them and, and walked with them and talked with them, they said these interesting words. They said, we had hoped that he, Messiah Jesus, uh, was the one to redeem Israel. Their, all their hopes were in the thought, the belief that he would be the one. And then he went and died. And of course, he revealed himself to them as the risen Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus in this chapter is reassuring them 
He's not abandoning them, abandoning them by his going. He's assuring them they need to trust in him, just like they trust in God. You believe in God, believe also in me. Do not let your hearts be troubled. He's inspiring hope. In fact, you know, the title of my sermon, which is Faith Facing the Future, is actually an explanation of what hope is. It's faith facing the future is what hope is all about. And that's what this chapter is all about. So first, faith in his promise. If we have faith in him, believe in God, believe also in me, he says, then we need to believe his promises. And the promise he gives here is an amazing promise. He says, I will come again and take you to be with myself. And again, just like the command, don't let your hearts be troubled, this is also a command. Believe in God, believe also in me. It's a command to believe, a command not to worry and a command to believe. It goes together, doesn't it? Jesus had a purpose in going away. What was his purpose? He was wanting to prepare for a reunion. In my father's house are many rooms, not mansions, rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? The word mansions is unfortunate translation. Um, it actually means a dwelling place, an apartment, if you like, or rooms. Uh, my father's house, Jesus said, I'm going to my father's house to prepare a place for you. Um, it, it was uh, not that he was wanting to, like he was brought up with his earthly father as a, a carpenter with hammer and nail making a place for us in heaven uh, as if. Um, it's not even, that, that's not the concept here at all. Um, he was uh, referring to, um, back then, the oriental palaces, the kings lived in these huge big palaces and they had uh, plenty of room for their, the king's sons uh, and then um, the whole idea here is an analogy about a wealthy father who um, has a son who's betrothed to be married. And after the betrothal, the, the, the son would then return to the father's house. And you'll see on the screen a picture of uh, a typical kind of rural house in a compound. They built walls around, and even in the cities, they built walls around their houses. And the wealthier you were, the bigger the, the, the compound and the more complex was the building or buildings in the compound. And the whole concept here is that the, the son who was betrothed would meet the bride-to-be at the betrothal, and then he would say, I'm going back to my father's house and I'm going to prepare a room for you and for me so that then when that's completed and the wedding is, is due, I will come back to you, my bride, and take you to be with myself in my father's house. Isn't that wonderful? That, that in those times they would add on another room or, or prepare a, a room or two that were otherwise used prior to that, but then they would be specially prepared for the new couple who had just gotten married. And so Jesus is saying, he's using that concept, he's saying, this 
is what I'm going to do. I'm actually going to prepare a place for you and come back for my bride and take you to be with myself. And the Bible talks about us, doesn't it? As the bride of Christ. That is what we are. So we see Jesus is coming back for us, for his own. It's his promise. I will come again and take you, my bride, to be with myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Oh, it's a wonderful thing to constantly remind ourselves of the return of Jesus Christ. And his return is a major part of the gospel. It's not just an add-on. It is actually a part of the gospel. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we read these words. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. All right, that's our faith. That's the gospel. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that through Christ, God will bring back those who have fallen asleep or have died. And then he goes on to talk about the return of Christ and the rapture. See, it's part of the gospel that he will return. But the Bible also makes it clear that there's two phases to Jesus' return. The main return where he comes in glory, and the Bible talks many times about this, to set up his kingdom, to rule from Jerusalem for a thousand years before the eventual recreation of heaven and earth. Uh, that rule will start when Christ returns, his feet will touch the Mount of Olives and it will split in two. He will deal with all his enemies and he will rule over the world from Jerusalem for a thousand years. That return in glory, the Bible says, will be with his saints, not for his saints, but with them. He'll come with the body of Christ, the believers who have been raised and who are with him, he will come back with them. Prior to that happening, there's going to be a time of tribulation, the Bible says, the time of God's wrath being poured out on this world. And it's going to be a seven year period. God will act in judgment prior to the coming of Christ. And that the Bible also says in 2 Thessalonians that we are saved from the wrath to come. We are saved from that. We will not be there. Just like uh, Moses, uh, sorry, Noah and the family were saved from the judgment of that day. Uh, we will be saved from the wrath to come, the seven year of the tribulation. And so we find here and in 1 Thessalonians 4 and uh, it's, it's dealt with elsewhere as well, like in 1 Corinthians 15, that the Lord will first come for his people, just as he says here, I will come again and take you to be with myself. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, we read that the Lord himself, Jesus, will return from heaven with the shout of command, with the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ... All who have died believing in Christ will rise to life first. And then those who are living at that time will be caught up with them, with the Lord, to be with the Lord forever. And the Bible makes it really clear that he's not going to come to earth that time. He's coming into the clouds. And we will join him there and go back to heaven for the seven-year period uh, 
until his return with the saints to set up his kingdom. Now, I haven't got time to go into it in any further detail except to say this. The return of Christ is imminent. It could happen any time. There is no prophecy. There's plenty of prophecies about the ret- what's going to happen prior to the return of Christ to set up his kingdom. But there's no prophecies yet to be fulfilled that would prevent Jesus from returning today to take his people out. In fact, the world is in such a state that it's not surprising to me or anyone if he does come today and the whole final uh, period of time is kicked into gear. Enough about that. We haven't got time to go into it. I love prophecy, but I uh, have to leave it there. So it's faith in his promise that Jesus inspires here in this chapter. Secondly, we see it's faith in his person. It's almost like a teaser that after he says this, Uh, that we've just looked at, he then says these words, you know the way where I am going. He says, I'm going to go away. And and then he says, you know the way that I'm going. Like a teaser. And immediately Thomas responds and says, we don't know where you're going. How do do we know the way? And then Jesus comes out with these amazing, wonderful words that uh, every Christian knows or should know. Jesus said, I am the way. And the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except by me. I am the way. That is a unique claim. I am the way. Not I'll show you the way. That's what religion does. It says I'll show you the way to God. I'll show you the way to enlightenment. I'll show you the way to peace. I'll show you the way to connect with God in some way. That's religion. Jesus said I am am the way. I remember um, hearing a story of a a fire that was in a house and and there was a little child in an upper room and it was in in Europe where the houses are built very close together. And the father ran up the stairs of the second house beside there and uh, looked across to the window where his son was and says, jump. And he wouldn't jump. And and if he did, he might have fallen anyway uh, to his death. So the father actually put his feet on the windowsill of the house right next door. It was very close. And then reached out and grabbed the, um, the, the windowsill of the house where the boy was. And the boy crawled across him. He was the way. He was the way. Uh, he didn't show him the way. He didn't tell him what to do. He just provided the way. And that's what Jesus has done the only problem between us and God is our sin. The only problem, it's huge. It brings death and judgment. It brings uh, suffering and pain. Death because of sin. And sin separates us from God. But Jesus, the sinless one, put upon himself the sins of the world. He took upon himself our sin and died in our place so that by his suffering and his death, you and I, can be forgiven. He is the way by trusting in him, not by trusting in doing good deeds. How will that remove your sin? Not by going to church. How will that remove your sin? Not by taking communion. How will that remove your sin? Not by being baptized. How does that remove your sin? Jesus said, I am the way. Then he adds to that, that's the primary 
thing he said. Then he says, to explain that, I'm the truth and the life as well. So that uh, when we come and believe in him, he is the way because not only did he die for us, but he is the truth. He is God incarnate, God revealed in flesh. He is the truth, the word become flesh. And he is the life, the one that is the life of God who died and rose again. And then he shares his life with all who put their faith and their trust in him. He is the way. He is the revelation of the Father, full of grace and truth. And we read in verses 6 and 7, If you had known me, Jesus said, you would have known my Father also. Think about that. If you'd known me, you'd know my Father. And he goes on to say, but from now on, you do not, uh, sorry, you do know him and have seen him. Uh, Which of those disciples had actually seen the glorious God of the universe? None of them. Not as in glory as he appeared in the uh, Old Testament. They'd seen Jesus. So Jesus went on to say, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I am the revelation of him. I am God revealed to you. Get it? Wow. Would anyone else have said those words or could anyone else have said those words and and not be a liar or, or a lunatic? God's essential nature is holiness and love and truth. And so his words and his deeds and his perfect life of moral glory reveal who he is. And the disciples later, John could write in the first chapter, we have seen, we've beheld his glory, the glory of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So his words and his works are mentioned here by Jesus as evidence of who he is. That if you, if you don't believe me, believe me because my teaching and believe me because of my works, what I've done. So verse 10 says, the words that, I've, uh, that I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Whatever he says or does, in other words, is nothing less and nothing other than what his father says and does. My teaching, he says in chapter 7, verse 16, my teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. It's like Jesus was, the father was still in heaven And the Holy Spirit was still everywhere and Jesus was on earth. And it's like when Jesus spoke, he spoke the Father's word. And when he acted and worked and did miracles, he was doing the Father's work. And it was almost like uh, the best illustration I can think of is a, a GPS. When you're driving along and it says turn left onto Cardinia Road, um, the reason it does that, it's not because it's in your GPS or in your phone. It's actually a, a satellite. And the constant connection with the satellite up there enables the GPS to tell you 
to turn left, to turn right, to to do a U-turn or whatever it might be. And so it is with the Lord Jesus. It's an illustration, not perfect, of course, but that the Father in heaven and he on earth was a permanent living connection. And what the Father thought and what the Son thought and did was exactly the same. He was a revelation of the Father as he lived and worked among us. The miracles, his works, were evidence of his power and glory. And then Jesus says something very interesting. He says, uh, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, there's two things here. First of all, greater works. How could we do greater works than Jesus raising the dead and and calming the sea and, and feeding thousands of people with a little lunch? I mean, it's not greater in um, nature. The word actually means greater in extent. The idea that with Jesus going back to heaven and the disciples receiving the Holy Spirit and going out and and uh, working and reaching out and thousands and thousands of people being regenerated, born again and 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 made right with God and, and uh, all that God does and used to do and is still doing today through his church is far greater in extent than if Jesus had just stayed on earth and done what he did. So it was like multiplying what Jesus did through his church, through his people, through his disciples. And the second thing here is it says, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, this is not saying, you know, oh, I want a new Maserati to drive around in. Uh, He says, hear anything in my name, I will do anything. That's what I want. (laughs) I I see Jeff's, uh, I mean, um, yeah, nodding up the back there. Well, I wouldn't mind a Maserati either, but, but you're missing out the three words that are so important. In my name. We are sent in his name. In other words, we're on his mission, doing his will. We're representing him to the world in sports chaplaincy, in reaching out to our neighbours, in whatever it might be, we are going in his name. And then he says, if there's anything you want, in the context of working his works, if there's anything you want or need, ask me and I will give it. I will work what needs to be done to fulfill this church's future. It's in his name that we are here as a church. And there's been some difficulties. I don't know much about it at all. All I know is that the church is revitalizing and moving forward. And as we do, we need to pray in the name of Jesus. In other words, in line with his mission for this church and for you as an individual for you as a family, for your ministry, for your giftedness. It's something that you need to contribute to the life and the outreach of this church. Yes, ask in his name and he will give it to you. 
His word is his bond. Join in prayer. Make prayer a priority. Whenever the church has a prayer meeting, join it. Pray. And pray in the name of Jesus, meaning in line with his mission for this church and for you as an individual. Well, let's move on. The third point is that he inspired faith in these disciples, faith in his promise, faith in his person, but finally, faith in his presence. And there's two passages here that deal with this. The two passages relate to uh, Jesus speaking of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> he says that, all right, he's leaving, he's going away, and they're going to be uh, struggling with all sorts of things. They're going to be left alone in this world. But Jesus is saying, you're not actually going to be left alone. Even though I physically am returning to heaven, I'm going to be with you because I'm going to send you a, the Spirit of God. In verse 7, 16 and 17, I have asked the Father and he will, so I will ask the Father, sorry, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The word another there is, an, is, is interesting. It's really meaning another of the same kind. It doesn't mean just another, like totally nothing to do with the first. It is is a word that gives the idea of another of the same kind. When we had a Jack Russell dog, uh, it died. And so we um, got another Jack Russell dog. And do you know what? It was of the same kind. Uh, very similar in the way they uh, ran around and barked and did whatever they did. It wasn't a, a pit bull. That's a different kind. And it wasn't a golden retriever. It was a Jack Russell. Now, it's not a very good illustration, but at least gets the idea out that the Spirit of God is another counselor to represent, to actually be Jesus when Jesus has gone. He is still with us by his Spirit. And that's what he's saying. I am with you always to the end of the age, he says in Matthew 28. And it says here, he's, to be our, he's going to be our companion. I am with you, he says, to, and the Spirit of God will be with us forever. The word there, meta, means fellowship. He's going to share our joys and our sorrows, just like a, a sports chaplain gets alongside and shares the joys and sorrows of those on the team who broke a leg or whatever happened to them, he is going to be like Jesus and be a, a person who has, who's with us, the Spirit of God, uh, forever. And then we see that he will dwell with us, verse 17. The word there is para, which means personal presence. It's not a force. He is a person. The word spirit in the Greek is neuter. It's not male or female or nothing to do with gender or personality. It's If you really speak about the word spirit, you have to say it. That's the way the word is. But Jesus doesn't use the word it. He says he will 
be in you. He will live with you. And so it shows the emphasis that Jesus was saying is the person of the Holy Spirit will replace the person of Jesus Christ. He's our companion. And thirdly, he, is, he lives in us. He's, our, he's the personal indwelling. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, can I just say, it is wonderful to know this truth. It's really wonderful. But do we live it? He's our teacher. He expands what Jesus has already said. He applies it. He interprets it. Jesus said, I am the truth. And here we find in this passage that the spirit of God is the spirit of truth. He's our Lord. The spirit of God in in us is the Lord. He replaces the Lord Jesus in terms of for those disciples in, in terms of physically walking around and they they were his disciples they followed him they obeyed him he said do this and they did it because he was the lord among them now that lord has gone to heaven and the lord the spirit now dwells within us the lord jesus by his spirit dwells within us and so he says if anyone loves me he will keep my word keep my commandments if you like and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. We are today, we're to live by the Spirit. We're to be led by the Spirit. We're to listen to his urgings or his nudging or his uh, guiding us in life. So we uh, come under the Lordship of Christ. And finally, he is our peace. In the context of this, he then says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let And he repeats what he said at the beginning of the chapter. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You're worried about me going away? Hey, when the Spirit of God comes and dwells within you, he will be your peace. The fruit of the Spirit is love, chapter 13, Joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so on. He will minister peace to us. The word peace, shalom, means well-being, wholeness, not just lack of trouble. And it's interesting here, Jesus says in verse 27, my peace I give, my I bequeath to you. The word there is bequeath, like like to an orphan, he talks here about them being orphans, left like without a parent in the, house, in, the, in the world. And he says, I'm going to bequeath to you my peace by my spirit, uh, even though I'm going. Not don't worry, be happy, but trust in the Lord and he will be your peace. So Jesus, by his spirit, will banish fear from our hearts and replace it with joy. As we finish up, I'm going to ask that we enter into the words of a song we're about to sing together. Uh, it, it's because of the COVID thing. It's from the internet, but it's a beautiful song. I love it. And um, the words, uh, the first and last verse go like this. Though the dread of night overwhelms my soul, he is here with me. I am not alone. 
Oh, his love is sure and he knows my name for my God is the ancient of days. And the last verse, though I may not see what the future brings, I will watch and wait for the Saviour King. Then my joy complete, standing face to face in the presence of the Ancient of Days. Sing with the team as they sing this with us today.